0: Welcome everybody this is Creative Careers Grace Cho CEO We are very happy to have a dear friend Janet Bartucci. Janet is a seasoned professional who brings decades of experience to strategic marketing and brand communications a respected communications professional she has worked with some of the largest consumer brands including healthcare, pharmaceuticals non-for-profits, hospitality and I'll keep going. Energy companies beauty food wine fashion, lifestyle, tourism, digital startups, publishers, and B2B organizations. That is a long list, so she has tons of experience. During her long tenure at Estee Lauder companies, she managed global communications for more than 25 fragrance skincare makeup fragrance brands. Two items that popped up for me that was very, very interesting in her long list of achievements was that Jana was a driving force in developing two things. One was a cosmetic safety website to provide important information on more than 6,000 ingredients. Very, very interesting. And second, she was instrumental in developing the company's first corporate sustainability report, which I think is fantastic. Janet's expertise includes credentials in issues and crisis management, reputation management, social media strategy, new product introductions, and corporate communications. It is my great pleasure to welcome Janet. Hi, Janet. Hi, Grace. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am (laughs) so excited to talk to you. I get to turn the tables on you, Janet. Well, it is. I said it's like the Shoemaker's Kids. I do this for everybody else, (laughs) but not for me. Oh, we're just going to have a blast talking about your background and how you got here. So that is my first question. Where did you go to school? What did you study? And what kind of drew you into this field?
1: Well, I think the interesting thing, Grace, is not really where I went to school, but how I got there. It's, you know, what drew me into this field. The backstory is, you know, I grew up in an Italian-American family, pretty conservative. I was the oldest girl. I was the first to go to college. I always had, you know, top grades in school. When I was in third grade, I was reading on a twelfth grade level, and they sent me to Adelphi so teachers could learn how to teach kids with that aptitude. But all along the way, I always had undiagnosed dyscalculia, which is a form of dyslexia for math. Hmm. so I could look at a complex math problem, tell you what the answer was, but I couldn't tell you how I got there. I had not a clue. It was like a wall went down, and you know, back in those days, nobody knew what dyscalculia was, and my father was in the architectural field and had developed a whole math system for dealing with nuclear plants. And so for him, he was looking at me like, you know, why can't you do this? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, well, I was honor society on everything else. So it was always a bit of a, you know, a conundrum. I had tutors all over the place every day, sometimes four days a week. Couldn't pass a math regents exam to save my life. You know, so that, that was always sort of one roadblock I had to deal with. But I was highly creative. I guess it's the right brain, left brain story i have been playing piano since I was six years old and, you know, kept performing until I was about 13 when I finally put my foot down. And I said, no way, no more. But everybody, including my teachers, thought, oh, well, she's going to go to Juilliard and that's going to be her career. But that wasn't what I had in my heart. I just did not have that kind of drive and aptitude. I, you know, I just didn't want to go through all of the auditions and performing and that kind of a lifestyle. And in high school, I was also really able to concentrate in art. So I got a really good edge up on expressing my creativity. Creativity and between piano and you know painting and sculpture and all that, I I, I was very expressive. And my family was in fashion. Um, one of my aunts was at Saxon Avenue for about thirty years, and then another aunt was a dressmaker. So for me, it was a natural segue to make my own clothes. And then I worked in retailing in high school. So long story short, when it came to applying for college, everybody said, "Okay, FIT. You won't go to Juilliard. You'll go into fashion. That's what you'll do." So okay. I like that. That That sounds like a good idea. So I applied for the buying and merchandising program at FIT, of course, which has a fair amount of math in it. <laughs> so during the application process, I was called in to meet with a new department head who was starting a new curriculum for advertising and communications. And he convinced me very politely and, you know, genteelly that I was much better suited to communications because of my creativity and my strong writing skills. You know, it was a nice way of him telling me that my math scores were terrible and that I should not go in that direction. Um, and so I've, I said, yes, you know, and they offered me a full scholarship because it was the first class coming in in that major. And the rest of was history. I mean, that for me was, you talk about those life changing moments that did it. Mm. I am doing exactly what I studied so many years ago. And that particular department head was so astute and so right. You know, this story comes
0: up continuously with all my guests is very successful people. It sort of boils down to this very important conversation with a teacher or a mentor mm-hmm. at a very young age. And so it's very important yeah. in those moments. So after graduation, what did you want to do? Did you want to continue
1: in this field? Uh, well, in school, it was, you know, advertising and communications, and it, the curriculum leaned more heavily towards advertising, but I really, really gravitated towards the PR side of it. I just loved the problem-solving, the strategy, the ability to look at the big picture. I felt that ad campaigns sometimes could get gimmicky or not, you know. You didn't have as much room to really tell a story. And I think bottom line, to me, storytelling was where I always was. And and I've always been sort of a builder, whether I was building a wardrobe or building a company or, you know, building websites or something brand campaign. Um so PR was definitely where I gravitated. And when I graduated, I was offered a position at a very small agency, but who was supposed to be in fashion. But of course that was the seventies and fashion was in a down spiral there. So It was when I first learned about the art of the pivot, Mm -hmm. and so Their pivot was to go from fashion to foods and wines of different countries in Europe. Mm. And so I went to work directly for them. And and the advantage of working at a small agency is that you get exposed to almost every aspect of the business and and very hands-on because nobody else is going to do it. So you either do it or you leave. And it's when I really learned also to jump out of my comfort zone because one of my first assignments was to edit cookbooks for the foods and wines of different countries. Now, you understand I grew up with six women in my family and my father. I never cooked. I never (laughs) had to go in the kitchen. And so the concept of me editing cookbooks was kind of alarming to my parents. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, you know, you rise to the occasion and uh, it was a real learning experience. And it was something I actually liked. I really gravitated to. I did a French, Italian, Portuguese, and Greek cookbook, uh, matching the foods and lines of countries. And it was a real education for me, and not just cooking, but in, in promotion and in PR and, in, and how, you know, there's a bigger story. The books were actually consigned by a wine importer, of Mm. course, you know, the wines of countries, but it was their way of talking about wines that maybe were not so popular in the United States. So it was a really good, uh, thoughtful campaign for them. Mm. And it taught me how to tackle a problem, which is one of the strengths that I think I gained from being at FIT was that it wasn't so much the actual tactics of writing a press release or you know, developing an ad or putting a campaign or editing a newspaper article. It was learning how to tackle a problem and really think through what the real issue was. And that stayed with me all these years. And so since I went to that small agency, then from there, the cookbooks took me to a publisher where I ran maybe 40 book tours a year. And that was in the days when authors traveled from one city to the next and good lucky authors would do you know, a 10-city media book tour, and somebody had to book those. And so I was the person who booked all those tours and then traveled with the editors in some cases. And I think it gave me an unbelievable understanding of how media works, even though it's changed so much over the last God knows how many years. But I think it, it you know it made me understand what producers are looking for, what booking agents want in a talent and what stories would sell and, and how to really pitch and wind pitch a story and what's the difference between print and broadcast. And now today social media of course is a big part of it, but it was a really interesting place to be for somebody that was going into PR.
0: I think that's wonderful. It's 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 literally boots to the ground what you did.
1: It was real boots to the ground exactly. Mm-hmm. And and also because, you know, publishing is a crazy business and I finally realized that unless I coordinated with the sales department, we would go into a city and there would be no books. But mm-hmm. nobody had thought in advance that this had to be done and it was an ongoing issue. So I finally got a hold of the sales manager there and I said, we're helping you. You need to help us. We need to have books in stores. <laughs> um, you know, it's, exactly. What, what a concept! <laughs> <laughs> it also was was another. You know, I think an, a, very indicative of the kind of things that I've done over the years. It, it, you can't just look. You can't operate in a bubble. You have to look at the big picture. You have to understand the whole business that you're in if you're gonna really be successful with one discipline of it. And you know, since then I've had a really varied career. I, I did the small agency thing, I did the, the publishing thing, I've been at two of the very largest PR firms in the world in different capacities and there I was like a kid in a candy shop because the resources are unbelievable and you know, the difference between being at a big PR agency versus a corporate situation, the PR agency communications is their business they're not making widgets they're doing communications projects and so they invest heavily in research and tools and people and all kinds of technology to make things work and that was also eye opening for me you know i got to work on the first tylenol crisis that came out and mm. um, we were doing a, a program on acetaminophen versus acetylsalicylic acid which is aspirin and you know suddenly acetaminophen was so popular and everybody was on tylenol it's the good news bad news when something is that visible and that popular it becomes candy for somebody who wants to disrupt was a problem. So I actually got to work through that whole crisis with J&J and it was another, you know, education in my life it was it was really life-turning. And then I went corporate. I went to the Estee Lauder companies, you mentioned the beauty background there and I was in the corporate practice there. I was not specifically brand until I took over Clinique International, and then I was branded there, I did Corporate and Clinique. But there, their brands were built through PR, so it was an ideal place. I, I had always avoided corporate situations because my experience had been that most corporate PR people do everything they can to stay away from the press.
0: <laughs> right.
1: And, and PR was never in the C-suite. It was not something that you know you were brought to the table. When they were launching something or discussing a new program or a new fiscal or whatever it was, but the Estee Lauder companies really built their brands on PR.
0: Oh, interesting!
1: And for me, that was a really great um, learning experience, and and I reported directly to Leonard Lauder, which was mind blowing. You know, I mean, he's just wow. so brilliant. It's 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 really fantastic. So, and and then from corporate, I went to being an entrepreneur, mm. which is where I am today. So, I brought it all together.
0: You know, it all sounds so glamorous, yet at the same time, when you carefully listen to what you're saying, you're managing so many details, the yes. operational details of everything.
1: Yes, yes, totally. And 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 you need to really know how to read the audience. No question about when I first went to Lauder, I think I was smart enough in those days to understand that, you know, I I came from being the head of a marketing practice for a big global agency. And so I could really speak my mind and I could be a diva if I wanted to, uh, which I wasn't, but I could. Mm. But I, I had. I had the ear of of senior management, and I went to, to a corporate situation where people had been at the company for twenty five years, and realized that you know the smartest thing I could do was to listen for the first six months, not say a whole lot, just listen and take it all in, you know, unless I was specifically asked to do things. And so you're trying to assess all the different people there, and you know it was a family run company which had recently gone public, so but you still had a lot of the old guard who were used to the family way of doing things. And everybody had their fiefdoms and their comfort zones. And it was a very interesting experience. And one of the first projects I was given as a corporate PR person there versus a brand PR person was to develop a corporate video, which the company didn't have. I had done quite a bit of work in video you know, before at the agencies. And so it was fine, happy to do it. So I was assigned one of the senior Art directors who happened to be French, and then the guy who was driving the project really also was one of the group presidents, who was also French. And so their style was very edgy and jazzy, and po po po, and exciting, and visual, and you know, lots of things. There's, there was a lot to say in a corporate video. It wasn't one of these slow-moving talking head videos. You know, this was really you know jazzy and, and exciting and stuff. And so <laughs> we of course had to present it to Mr. Lauder, and uh, we had the group president, the art director, the president of the company, the CEO of the company, and Mr. Lauder in a room, and my boss, who was the, the head of global corporate com for the company. Just as we're about to present, the group president, who was the advocate for the video, had to take a call with Women's Wear Daily, so he left. <laughs> so we introduce the video, we turn it on, and we're sitting there all excited. In three seconds, Mister Lauder slams his hands on the table. He says, "I hate it!" Oh
0: <laughs> no!
1: Yes, and we had worked on this for like four months. You know? Oh I mean, dear! He he didn't even have to see past the intro; he knew it was wrong. He hated it. It was not his voice. He was the corporate situation. So, I mean, in that case, we all had an audience of one, you know, it, it right. was not a bad video. It wasn't wrong, but we underestimated the, the vision for the one person we had as the audience. Wow! I, got I was, just, oh my God. I, and I was just sitting there thinking, okay. <gasps> what do you this.
0: do in that situation?
1: I, I said, well, I, I can, I can learn, I can listen every in PR there are so many mistakes that are made that everything is an opportunity. And at this point I got called into Mr. Lauder's office and I was just like, "Oh boy." Oh. <laughs> I'm get my resume out there. <laughs> This is not good. We just spent a hundred thousand dollars of corporate money on this video and we have and you know I said, well listen, we're happy to change it. We can edit you know we can change anything we want in and it. it's it has not been you know sent anywhere. don't worry. I never want that to go out of this house ever anywhere.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Oh my God, it is. It does send shivers up your spine to be in in that situation. But in his office he had the Klaus um, Oldenburg eraser. Mm -hmm. sculpture are you Mm -hmm. familiar with that i am yes tail on top he looked at me and he said you see that he said that's what mistakes are for he said that's what erasers are for he said you will just forget it move on learn from this and do something else in the company i mean i was there for 10 years this was in my first six months
0: What an incredible experience within the first six months. Yeah. That is just unbelievable. Heart attack.
1: Okay. I mean, it was was brutal, but but the gentleman who was also then CEO called me into his office. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's going to be even worse. And he said, listen, I felt for you, you know, there was nothing we could do. Now you understand how the company works and you have a better insight into the philosophy around it
0: and then you you went on for years and years so you did something good
1: i wrote the annual report for 10 years
0: wow it's so great that's a great story yeah this is an incredible story so when you think back on that what what are some of the things that you would you would sort of highlight as key learnings from obviously you said it was an audience of one were there other sort of realizations
1: Well, the annual report, too, was was also an audience of one. I mean, Ah, we were a public company, but the family was majority shareholder there. And the philosophy behind the annual report was that it was the Berkshire Hathaway uh, philosophy that people save the annual reports and they want to read them year after year and and, and compare them. Now, not everybody believes that. There may only be one person or two people in the world that really believe that, but it made sense. I mean, at one point, Mr. Lauder held up the annual report and he said, this is the single biggest, greatest marketing tool for this company. Mm. Because when you think about it, the company was all about the brands. The brands were the company. People really didn't understand that the Estee Lauder companies owned, I don't know, at that point, it might've been 25 brands. Nobody knew that a lot of those brands belonged to the Estee Lauder companies. Yeah. So there was a real need for a corporate communications program that didn't overshadow the brands and didn't smother the brands because the Estee Lauder companies was a fairly super smart retailing, well-respected gold standard company. Um, but you would not say edgy, but when you yeah. have brands like Mac and Aveda and even, you know, origins, a whole different philosophy, you know, having Mac say that they were part of Estee Lauder was like having a teenage daughter bring her mother to the dance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yes.
1: So there were often lots of fine lines that I that I had to walk there. And corporate communications was really interesting there because I did a lot of crisis work there. And I wrote the crisis manual. And, you know, you really learn that a lot with crisis, biggest successful campaigns are probably the ones that nobody ever saw because right. you managed to avoid the crisis on that. You mentioned the website that I worked on um, with the cosmetics industry was the low-hanging fruit for the chemical industry in those days. And so the activist groups love to show a pregnant mother with lipstick and then birth defects or fragrance. and, And they just made it sound so trite, and they made the industry look so irresponsible, which it's not. There's an amazing amount of testing that goes into putting cosmetics together Mm-hmm. But you know there are certain ingredients that they go from one industry to the next. You know, phthalates do one thing; preservatives do the same thing in, in lots of different kinds of products. And so our challenge was to really get our story out there, but not make it an Estee Lauder company's problem. It became an industry problem. So we worked with the industry trade organization to put a website together so that people could find the answer themselves without having to go through a specific PR person. You know, or, or corporate situation where nobody wants to talk to the activists. And and my goal has always been transparency mm-hmm. and authenticity. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that, you know, if we really wanted the activists to stop crashing our websites on Mother's Day and, you know, turning it off to their sites or running ads that absolutely make us look so irresponsible, we needed to have a dialogue. We needed to provide information and, and the website became that. And also for media, for for journalists trying to do a real story to not be Led by activists with exaggerated headlines. You know, newspapers don't sell on necessarily good news. It's always the alarming headline that grabs viewership. And so our job was to take a little bit of that sting out of things and say, here, you want to be transparent. Here's the whole story. So the website was built with different layers. So it was on a need to know basis. If you just want to know if you bought a specific lipstick or fragrance or sunscreen, what ingredients were in the Here's a list of the ingredients. If you wanted to know a little bit more about that particular ingredient, you could click on the ingredient and then find some layman's term information on it. If you wanted to go really deep, you could click on that and then you could go find the FDA studies on all these ingredients or the product testing on these ingredients. And was, I think I was so insistent on having it be that in-depth, it became known as the Bartucci way.
0: <laughs> oh, that actually could be a good title for a book. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing.
0: I think it's a very good thing.
1: But I, I was just—I so had this vision that you know, transparency and knowledge was key in this point, and that's what we had to do. It actually worked. You know, the, the activists did start developing better relationships with companies, and, and we did meet with them, and it opened up a dialogue that I think has been productive over the years. Because I don't see those ads running anymore.
0: You said something that's interesting to me in the PR world: the sort of transparency and authenticity is your secret to success, so to speak. Do you believe that's the case across PR world, or are there different types? How do you assess the PR situation these days?
1: Authenticity never goes out of style. Right. I think especially these days when there's so much information available to consumers, people can sniff out a phony in a heartbeat.
0: Mm, I agree with you.
1: And there's so many wannabe products and lookalike products and things that if you are not your authentic self, you will lose ultimately your market share. Yeah. So authenticity for me is always key. No question about it.
0: That's the timeless aspect of PR, right? Yes. It's, it's always going to be the end thing.
1: To me, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there have been all kinds of campaigns where people were called greenwashing and whatever, you know, when they were trying to do environmental programs and Earth Day programs and they had, there was nothing sustainable about them. That's not not authentic. And you can't make those claims and expect to get away with it. So for me, it's a cardinal rule. You have to stick true to who you are, Mm. good or bad. You have to stick true to it. And then the transparency comes when you have to be able to share information with people. Transparency in a crisis goes without saying. You communicate once, you communicate twice, you answer early, you give them the facts, you don't lie. Because again, ultimately you get caught in your own corner you do that.
0: It is the best long-term strategy. I agree with you.
1: I really believe that. And, and PR is very much about building relationships with people. And, uh, and
0: yes, of course.
1: It could be a consumer. It could be a reporter. If you're on the agency side, it could be a corporate client. If you're a company, it could be vendors. If you're meta, you know, yeah. these days, transparency is everything. People will throw you under the table the minute they find out that you're lying about something or that you're pretending to be something that you're not. So
0: so to that effect, you've been in the pre-social media world and now there's yeah. everything is digital. What are your thoughts on that and how that has impacted your industry?
1: Well, I think information certainly travels faster mm-hmm. than it ever did before. There's a lot more access to it. It used to be that companies would not respond on social media or they wouldn't participate in anything that was digital because they felt they didn't have control over it. But I think that it's sort of moved on from that. But again, social media and the internet to me are tools they're tactics. And like any tool, you have to learn how to use it well. It's not a strategy to me. It's it's a tool. If your strategy is to reach certain audiences, social media may be able to take you to those audiences, but not every platform might be right for you. There's something called a peso method p-e-s-o and if you're putting an integrated marketing campaign together the best case scenario would be to have a program built on peso And peso is paid earned social and owned media so paid of course is your advertising strategy earned is what you get from media placements and third party endorsement social obviously is all the social media and digital stuff out there and then owned would be your own website and blogs. And so each one serves a different purpose in a campaign.
0: Oh, that's a great mnemonic device. I'll have to remember that.
1: And each one um, helps reach a different audience in some cases. Mm. And so you have to understand what it is you're trying to communicate, who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to say. In some cases, not all the platforms work perfectly for it. And what your budget is. I think, you know, to look at social media as an entity in and of itself in a bubble is probably not a strong communications point of view. I
0: do see that a lot, unfortunately. And of course, the question always for me is the balance of the four methods, mm-hmm. the four distribution mm-hmm. channels, like which ones do you, do you lean heavy on and versus the other? That's always the uh, question.
1: But again, it starts with understanding your goals for your program and understanding who you're trying to reach and where do they go for information? Mm. If you're trying to reach millennials and you might be all on Facebook and they're not looking at Facebook anymore—that's an older audience. You're throwing change in the wind. Yes, you're missing your key audience, and you look like you don't really understand what you're doing. Right. So you know. So I, I always think it's it's really important, and you know, the, the concept of okay, so in my case, I'm a small business. So what am I doing? You know, for myself, you're going to apply <laughs> your same. It's both. Exactly. I mean fortunately for me, my business has been built on reputation and my clients have been, I'd say, ninety nine percent word of mouth referrals for me, which is um, super fortunate in that sense. But I recently started my own social media campaign just kind of almost as an experiment to see how it worked. And I'm fascinated to see the results, you know, whether it's LinkedIn or Alignable or Instagram or Facebook, you know, what's pulling where and how long it takes for things to come up and what types of messages are resonating with who. And you can tell, you can get all this from the analytics on these websites now, as I'm sure you know. And so it's pretty fascinating for me.
0: So you're doing this for yourself and not for a client, which is interesting, right?
1: (laughs) It is. (laughs) And believe me, I have somebody who's posting for me. I provide probably 80% of the content, and I'm using my own photography, which I've collected over the years.
0: I did not realize this. All the hidden talents.
1: Uh, Also, it's my brand. And so for me, I built my own website, too, because it was my brand. It's your brand. Audience of one. An audience of one. (laughs) (laughs) And I know my brand inside and out. Look at that. Intuitively. I don't recommend that everybody do that on their own, but.
0: What's it like? Is it different doing it for yourself versus a client now that you're doing it for yourself? What's different about it? Or is it the same?
1: I mean, I take my client's business like it's my business. So it's, it's kind of the same. Uh I might allow myself a little bit more freedom than I might give to a client, but I, I'm working with a, a small chocolate company out of New York, uh, Chocolate Modern, and she's having her 20th anniversary and she's certainly bigger than I am, but she's still an entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I give her the same advice that I would give myself about, you know, the style of photography and keywords and messages and the look of her website and, you know, all kinds of packaging and things like that. Mm-hmm. I get involved in all aspects, you know, so it, it's a little bit of the same. But I think it, it helps me doing my own to think about these things for clients.
0: Oh, yes, of course. Uh huh. So doing it yourself, you might find new insights that you could offer to yeah. your clients as well. Yeah. So you've been through so many different roles, companies, decades of so many different situations, good and bad. And a young person comes to you and says, I want to be in this. You could be that person who changed your life. What would you say to that person?
1: first of all, can they write? You can't be in this business if you can't write. I right. don't like to write. Absolutely, that, that is a given.
0: Which is a separate conversation around AI, by the way.
1: Yes. Again, but AI, I'm not so frightened of AI. I think it is another tool.
0: Exactly. I agree with you there.
1: It's something that we have to embrace just like social media. Yeah. In order to stay in this business, you have to be able to move forward. I think it was Einstein that said you can't solve the problems with the same old thinking that caused the problems.
0: <laughs> That's right. That is my motto. It's like a sign of insanity to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result.
1: <laughs> exactly. If you want to be in this business, you have to be somebody that is willing to move forward. You have to be a problem solver. Nobody starts a PR campaign unless there's something they need to achieve. And if they don't have a measurable goal, you won't have a good campaign. So you need to identify the problem and you need to be able to identify a good solution. You have to like a challenge because this is not an easy business at all. It's not fluff. I mean, people used to think of PR and they think about you know parties and cocktails and lunches and uh-uh. it's nose to the grind, as you said earlier there's some of that, but you have to understand why you're at that party. What are you doing at that party? Who are you meeting with? Why are you meeting with them? What's the outcome going to be? What does it mean for your client? You know, I always tell people they have to be relentless for results. You can't stop thinking. You can't sit back and just rest on your laurels. A
0: hundred percent agree. It's about the brand reputation. It's the leader's reputation that you're taking care of.
1: Exactly. And you have- Which is
0: very stressful. Yeah
1: well and, and you have to be one step ahead absolutely you have to be able to anticipate what the repercussions will be i was at lunch with a very senior executive from a public company and it was the new york post was at lunch and it was a very congenial it was maybe six people at lunch I was chatting and laughing and stuff and this particular executive said something the reporter grabbed it published it it was a material fact that had a material difference on the stock. Oh, no. (sighs) You talk about a crisis. I mean, some crises are more like a tempest than a teapot. This one had major implications. And it was (gasps) just an offhand comment that he didn't think twice about. It, It wasn't malicious. So conflict resolution, you have to be really fast to be able to deal with something like that.
0: Is that a skill that you learn or you're just naturally skilled?
1: I think you can learn it. I, I think there has to be an innate personality trait that you're not the conflict to be able to do conflict resolution. I think empathy is another aspect that's so important these days, especially dealing with something like that. You have to understand how it came about. You have to understand that the reporter felt obligated to print it. But then you also have to understand how to deal with the market investor relations. And empathy is the only way that you can really get through all sides of a conversation and um, really come out winning. It it goes with authenticity and and transparency to me. That's right. is is a key trait for anybody who's going to be a leader in, in PR. And the other thing I think somebody coming into this business should think about is, do they want to be corporate? Do they want to be agency? Two different mindsets. And I can tell you from having done both. Um, And then even within agency, if you're not passionate about the subjects you're working on, it's too hard. It doesn't work. You can't do a genuine program. If you asked me to do a fintech program, I'd probably fall flat on my face. I don't understand it, you know, but, but give me, you know, some of the other categories you mentioned and I can fly with it, you know, and I can do anything.
0: Oh, that's an interesting thing. So you do need to have capacity as well as like sort of affinity to it.
1: I believe that's true. Because also, you know, if, if you're going to have an impact, you need to understand what rises to the top in different fields. Yes. What are the pulse points of different fields? What do people care about? And I'm not as savvy in something like fintech as I am in, in many other areas. And you, you have to know that. You have to know what your shortcomings are.
0: This is a fascinating field, to be honest. It's yes. the combination of knowing how to read people. There's a whole heck of marketing there. Mm-hmm. And there's also like sort of strategy, the forward thinking strategy, and how to get there. Operations is another big thing. So when you think of PR and communications, you know, You don't even think about these things unless you're actually doing it, which is
1: fascinating to me. You really have to think like your client.
0: You kind of have to think like the CEO.
1: You do. I mean, you know, some people in PR just want to do media placement. That's fine if that's what you want to do, you know, but I think understanding the business on a bigger scale, you can get better media placements. Every client comes in and says, I want to be on The Today Show. I want Oprah. Why am I not on The Wall Street Journal? Well, We'd love that too if it was the right thing. It's not always the right thing. Not all clients can handle something like the Today Show or an Oprah or some clients, the Wall Street Journal, they're too small or you won't release numbers, or you know you have to really understand that business. So I, I think it's very hard to be in this business and just work one side of it.
0: That's a very good point.
1: It makes it so much more interesting if you can really, really get involved.
0: So you've done a lot. What's like the one or two great things that you could tell your grandchildren?
1: I knew you were going to ask me that. I've done so many campaigns over the years. There are a few that I'm really known for, and they're long-term programs that I've worked on for many years. Not now, but I did. Years ago, I was working with a UN consortium that was made up of Mediterranean countries. There were about 12 countries whose economic status and health really depended on their olive oil production. But it was in those days when olive oil was considered old-fashioned. It was fattening. It was smelly. It was too ethnic. You know, it was sold in the bottom shelf of a supermarket. And that campaign was notable because it was one of those trickle-down campaigns where we started working with the NIH, National Institutes of Health, sponsor some medical research on the cardiovascular benefits of olive oil. And they tested, you know, it was monounsaturated fatty acids versus polyunsaturated, which is what all the Criscos of the world, um, the liquid vegetable oils were in those days, and everybody thought that was much healthier. And so once we got those studies, then the Mediterranean diet came out, and then we started working with chefs, and we started doing recipe development, and doing olive oil tastings around the country. And literally after about, oh, I don't know, within 10 years, it became the fastest growing category in the supermarket and it's held that position. Mm. I mean, now it's it's being overshadowed a little bit more by coconut oil and some of the other specialty diet things, but it was a phenomenal campaign. It really was all encompassing and really did bring olive oil to the forefront.
0: Oh, that's a good one. You certainly
1: did your job because olive oil is king to me. So it's in every kitchen. It was a 180 campaign. It was really fascinating to work with it. Yeah. The other one, I worked for the Pork Producers Council. You talk about needing to really rethink and rebrand a category. We did that with pork, came up with the concept of pork as the other white meat.
0: I can't believe you're the one who was who, who the mastermind behind that. <laughs> of all the years I've known you, I've never heard this before. This is incredible. Do you know how many times every day I must like say it at least one the other white meat?
1: You know, you talk about when, when you're in PR, you kind of have to keep your eyes open and be inspired by everything and notice everything. My husband was born on a kibbutz in Israel, uh-huh. and we were visiting the family in Israel, and they had what they what's called an aknikia, which is like a smoked meat factory. Yes, they did all kinds of birds and chicken and you know that sort of thing. And then I noticed that they had all these like poor products, sausages, and oh. different kinds of bacon and stuff that they smoked. And I kind of looked like, this is Israel. How could you do this? It wasn't a kosher kibbutz, but still, it's Israel. And they just kind of winked at me and they said, oh, you know, we put it over there with the white meats. So I thought about it and I was working for the Pork Producers Council. I came home and I wrote a headline like, "Pork, the other white meat. Oh, this is genius. (laughs) It stuck. I remember
0: watching television with my mother. Wow, that's a pretty good campaign. I remember this. We went to the grocery store and we got pork loin. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's so
1: funny. I mean, I didn't do the advertising. I just did the PR on I
0: it. I know, but it, but it
1: literally started just, you know, during family conversation and I came home and I was rushing to get a headline out on something and like, oh, the other white meat, but it stuck. I mean, I could, come up with a hundred reasons why it worked. That's another PR skill is to be able to redefine the category. Apple just came out with a new headset um, and it's kind of like a virtual reality or augmented reality. And instead of calling it VR, they're calling it spatial computing, I think is brilliant. That's actually quite good you redefine the category. This way you don't play by everybody else's rules. You can define the category yourself and put your attributes out there first. Oh, that's a very good point. Yeah. And so that's what we did with pork. We did it with olive oil. And then Dove was the other one way back when I worked for Unilever and, and we were working on Dove Beauty Bar. Mm-hmm. And Dove was sort of it, it was like you buy it in the supermarket and it came in a box that looked just like soap, but they never called it soap because it was allegedly it, cold cream, not allegedly, it was cold cream. So it was more of a beauty bar, but who's the audience? You're not going to go after the mastige consumer necessarily, because then you're fighting with all the cosmetic companies and you're not selling in department stores. So we round and round and round. And so we started saying, well, let's call it a beauty bar for real women, for women who don't necessarily want to spend all their money on high-end cosmetics, but want to take care of their skin. Mm. So we started the Dove Real Woman campaign, and it started as a contest we did with Family Circle magazine for people to write in, like, why my mother is the best mother, why my mother is a real woman. And it just took on a life of its own, and I still see it today. I still see it today. You were involved in that, too. I did not know this.
0: You're behind all these amazing campaigns. I did not know that. It's incredible. You could definitely tell your grandkids about these because they've lived on.
1: And that's that's how you know. And even, you know, the, the, you mentioned the uh, Estee Lauder Company's uh, sustainable report, the first sustainability yes. report we did. We called it the beauty of sustainability. There's your authentic note right there. And transparency.
0: The use of the words. I absolutely love it. It's a magical thing what you've done. Fantastic. Now, what are you working on these days? You're launching your own practice. Tell me about the, the practice
1: and what do you do and at what stage are you in? I should be retired, but I'm not. <laughs> just, I just I keep saying when are you retired? I thought I was going to retire when I left my last job, but clients came with me, and and I genuinely like the clients I work with. So yeah. and I genuinely like the work that we're doing. So that's what keeps me going. And and um, you know if you I guess if you're passionate about something, you're never working.
0: That's right. You're just doing
1: what you like to do. So I work very closely with the Pierre Hotel, as you know, yeah. which is one of my all time favorites. And and again, it's having a seat at the table with the senior management there and helping them with everything that goes from food and beverage and chefs to crises to board issues and and you know messaging and it, it, it's just it's so complex that nobody understands really what goes on behind the scenes at a hotel it's fascinating and i just love working with it they they just announced a new chef and i've been really working very closely with him to first get him approved and then work on his key messages you know what what do you stand for how are you going to be different than the other chef what's going to be your niche how are you going to move the restaurant forward what's going to happen What's your vision, goals, you know, all of that stuff. And I love that.
0: They're very fortunate to have you because it's kind of like your olive oil background, your cookbook background. (laughs)
1: All of that comes in to play. Well, and that's that's the other thing too. I mean, everything you do over the course of your career ultimately should influence another dimension of of how you perceive clients and and what you can do for them.
0: Oh, you bring in so many layers of experience. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah.
1: And I'm working with a, an entrepreneurial company called Chocolate Modern, which is, it's like a little hidden gem in Chelsea. Uh, she's on 20th Street and and she makes these incredible luxury chocolates right in her workshop and sells from there. Her re- she's on the ninth floor of an office building. She's having her 20th anniversary. And I've been working with her to give a voice to that and help her stand out from the competition. I mean, she's got a cult following, needless to say, but Wow. Uh, we're trying to expand that and really make her more visible. And, you know, 20th anniversary has nothing to ignore. Chocolate, olive oil. These are my favorite things. <laughs> wine. I've done, I've done lots of champagne. Oh, and my Italian goodness. Wine.
0: <laughs> we could have a party. You certainly can. Well, Janet, it's been a great pleasure. I mean, I, this has been the funnest one I've done. <laughs> yes. It's, <laughs> it's <just> a blast.
1: <laughs> Oh, um, well, it's been great for me also. Oh my I god, it's so much
0: fun. It was such a great conversation with my friend. Let's do it again. We'll do it again. We'll definitely do it again. Oh. Maybe with a glass of roll next time. And I don't know what <laughs> new adventure you're gonna bring to the table. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Janet. Thank you, Grace, for having me. It's always great. This is Grace Cho, Creative Careers. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.